Let's see, we are in a series going through the Bible. We're in a series in the New Testament letter. The letter is referred to as 1 Corinthians. And as we go through this series, I want to I encourage you to really kind of even be digging in throughout the week, be thinking through what the Lord will speak to you in your own study, uh, in our time of corporate time together. I, I've titled the series, Called Out, Called Up. God's invitation to live and love at a higher level. See, we, we live in this world, as we know, and when you're born again, born of the Spirit, when God has opened your eyes to the reality of your personal sin and your separation from Him, and when He opened your eyes, He, he introduced you to the forgiveness He offers you. It wasn't just open your eyes to make you feel bad. Rather, to help you see you need him, you need his forgiveness. And when you responded to that, whether it be in a group setting, say perhaps such as this, or a, maybe a larger setting, a type of evangelism, or maybe something very personal and intimate, uh, which is you and maybe another person. But when you responded, and you literally responded in functionally this fashion, I agree with you, God. I agree that I need forgiveness. I've got issues. I know I've sinned. I've done things against you. Please forgive me. I put my trust in you, Jesus. I believe that you are God. I believe you rose from the dead. I don't even know how to do all this. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, as the Father said. You know, how that experience was in a personal level, it'll vary among every one of us. But what happened is you put your faith in Christ. And the Bible tells you and me that when you, the moment you put your faith in Christ, you're born again, born of the Spirit. And it's not an optional thing, like, you know, well, I like this religion, or I follow this group, or I hang out with these people. Jesus actually, as he said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. It wasn't like one of the sidebars on a Christian sect or group. You must be born again, born of the Spirit. And so why do I preface and start with all that? Well, because we are called out. We're in this world, but God separates us, if you would. We're physically still here, you've noticed. But you're born again, called out of it. So this horizontal plane we live in, we're called up. We didn't get to physically leave, which we would probably long for. But we're here. But we're referencing now, we're looking to God where we didn't used to before. And now we're called out, called up, and he's inviting us to live and love at a higher level. Because in reality, we all know that. We haven't experienced the fullness of God in the manner that he really is inviting us to. That's nothing negative. That's not criticism. That's just an observation. I know it in my own life. I'm confident in everyone's life. We, we, can, we can know God in a deeper way. And so... This letter that we're going through, 1 Corinthians, is a very fascinating letter to me. The letters to the church at Corinth, there was one letter written, and then there's this letter called 1 Corinthians, and then there's another one, 2 Corinthians. 1 and 2 are in the what we call the canon of Scripture that we read through. These letters are corrective and directive. Uh, the letters were written to the family of God, that gathered in the city of Corinth, and they were meant to bring comfort, correction, clarification, and encouragement to Christians that desired to know Jesus in a deeper way. 
See, in every generation since the resurrection, there's people that are born again. They've received this forgiveness I spoke of. They've responded to the grace extended. But most of us have certain seasons where we're just okay in our own mind. You know what I'm talking about? Where you've experienced that forgiveness of God, you're glad, but you're still really closely attached to this world. And so I remember that season in my life where I was like, I, was, I just knew the promises of God. I had a, a deep conviction based on the word of God and what God had done in my life. And, and I knew I was forgiven. I knew I was, I was born again. Yet I was still okay with living in this world. Doing things that were more related to this world than looking towards him. And I know, I think maybe many of you could, could validate or even, you know, synchronize with what I'm saying, so to speak. It's the most miserable way to live. And the reason it is, before I was born again, I did dumb well. And I was okay with it. I could pursue carnal pleasures. I could do whatever. Maybe I felt bad, so I'd do something to make myself feel better. Whatever. But then when I committed my life to Christ, when I took this step of being born again, I didn't know what I was signing up for. I was just glad that God had forgiven me. So now I've got this, but I'm longing for that. So I'm really not much good here, and I'm not much good here. I'm actually torn in between. I found it to be better to be all in one way or the other. Not lukewarm, but either hot or cold. And I, re I believe it's better to not just be glad you're saved. You should be glad you're saved. But longing for a deeper understanding of the word of God and the truths of God. And that's really what this letter is about. It's about learning to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that 2 Peter 3.18 goes on to say that we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Now this letter as it's uh, written to those who desire this deeper walk. This, and even for those who maybe didn't have the conscious awareness of that deep desire. They, they're going to respond to the instruction. This, this letter has been preserved by God. Not only just for the first century, the, the, the church in Corinth and those in that region afterwards, but even till today, we still have it. We turn our attention to this letter because God has preserved it for us. Now, some will say to you and me that it's different today. Um, it's th things are different. The world's different. These archaic and these old religious books, such as the Bible, they don't have as much application. They don't have as much place today, some will say. And I will tell you, you can study on your own, a study of scripture and a study of history prove that there's nothing new under the sun. When you look into what happened in Corinth, what was taking place in first century Corinth, it was as immoral as sexually perverse and ungodly as our current global and national state. In that time, that the city of Corinth was so off track. They were so stuck on themselves that whatever you want to do, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's sad that sexuality is where pe people go off course most frequently. It kind of makes sense because God created sex for a purpose. God created in a framework and parameters. And he said, this is the way it's to be done between a husband and a wife. And here's the framework of serving one another. And of course, humanity, led by a deceiver known as Satan, says, no, you can do it this way. 
And you can practice it with this, and you can do it like that, and you can do all this other stuff that is, is actually what you would call perverse. Per- perverse meaning it's off its original course. It's not as intended. It's been perverted. You've heard the term, the, the, this, the, the attorney perverted justice taking it away from what justice should have been. Uh, you hear often the word pervert is, is sexual in its orientation or context, right? Because it's, it's off from its regular course. And I say that because Corinth was just like, now. But the called out ones, the church, is not to be like the world around them. See, we are called, we are invited this new life, this born again, this new life, living within them, within us, we're to be light shining in an ever-darkening world. Did the people in Corinth have it all figured out? <laughs> Not any more than you do. Not any more than I do. They're kind of in this uh, learning as they went, learning as they go. It's why this letter is so important. It was written to those who were born again and needing to grow. See, Always remember, the church, you and I, those, of, those who are born again or soon to be born again, the church is loved by God and corrected by him. It's really important we know that. If you're corrected by someone who hates you, you're not really keen on the correction, and there's a good reason. Because if they hate you, they probably correct you for their own benefit and not for your benefit. But if you're corrected by someone who loves you, then you may not realize it in the moment, but their correction is completely different motivation. Their desire, what they're trying to accomplish and bring about in your life is actually beneficial. And so you think about what's happening in this church in Corinth. We've seen it last week in chapter 5, there's sexual immorality. We've seen it in the first four chapters. There was division and arguing and arrogance and all this really weird stuff. We're going to see it as we go along. They didn't understand what marriage was supposed to be like. We'll see that in chapter 7. And you'll just see it all the way up to chapter 11, leading into chapter 12. All these carnal things before he really gets to like the gifts of the Spirit. And here's what's interesting. All the problems in what is God doing? Is he looking for the lightning button? No. He's loving them. He's correcting them. He's bringing instruction into them. And so here's the thing to realize. Love brings correction. Love brings correction. Love causes you to address the awkward. That's what we've done here last week, and we'll touch on that again this week. Love compels you to speak truth with clarity, compassion, and kindness. The church is loved by God and corrected by him. With all our our failings and all our frailties and foolishness God loves his people and then rather than putting this aside and starting over he's like I'm going to teach you he wants you and me to know his love what's his love what's the evidence of his love that he would come and take on human frame that he would come and, and take on all the feeling all the sentiment all the experience of humanity individually he would come as a man born sinless, and living a sinless life. You know, I don't know that we really grasp it. He didn't come with the divine super suit. You know what I'm saying? He, he didn't get like special empowerment so he wouldn't sin because that would not accomplish the just judicial process of paying 
the penalty for sin. He literally is in the same frame you and I are in. And he comes as a man. Why? He comes as a man because God so loved the world that he gave himself, his one and only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. So here, what I'm saying in all of this is, is his love is brought to us. His love is revealed. It's his love that is going to bring correction into your life. And, and that love is fascinating to me because it can be difficult sometimes to experience and to follow. I want to pray right now before we dig in. God, we thank you that we can come before you. We know that it's not because we figured something out or maybe we've disciplined ourselves to get up on Sunday morning and place ourselves where we could learn more about you. Lord, those things are, they have a place and there's a purpose for that. But Lord, we're, we're here, we're seeking you because you have loved us. Before we even thought about what divine love would be, that divine love was presented to us. And I just pray, God, that as we look through your word, we not try to just live on analytics, not live just on logic, not just merely working through with reasoning, not just compelled and stirred by emotion. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would teach each one of us your word. We can't figure it out. These are spiritual things, and the natural mind can't just reason it through. So by faith, we would ask, I would ask, God, you would teach each one of us your word, how to be corrected, how to know your love, how to be aware of who we are, which will affect how we are. Oh, Lord, may you be glorified in our lives as we seek to know you and make you known, as we seek to walk closer with you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, here in our study through 1 Corinthians, last week as we were looking at chapter 5, we've seen that it, it revealed that Born-again Christians had elevated relationships above the clear instruction of God. They had elevated relationships above the clear instruction of God. The church was more social than spiritual. In their gatherings, in, in their getting together, God's word had been referenced, but not followed. And the confusion and immorality that followed was disastrous. And so God lovingly and sternly gives instruction and direction to bring his people back on course. I believe it's the nature of the church in every generation. I believe it's the reality of the church even now. Sometimes it's more social, who we can connect with, who we can engage with, not just from a sense of, a, of, a, of appearance in a sense, but just it's, just, it's pleasant to, to gather together. But if that gathering becomes more important than the following of the word of God, do you see what happens? It, it becomes a complicated thing. It becomes a problematic thing. So we're going to look at what, what God has said, his instruction. We're going to take a little bit different approach this week, but let's just start with 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 13. We covered it last week, but in setting up the stage, so to speak, and reminding ourselves, we're going to look at that, and then we're going to dive into chapter 6. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet certainly I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, 
or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortionist, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So he's making a, a clarification. He's making something that's an important distinction. This is addressing family matters. Because there was family and then those outside the family. Think of it this simple. I remember growing up that there was just issues and then, and, 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 you know, in my family and then as been as I, we were raising kids and there's one time that, you know, our kids had kind of gotten this argument, if you would, and the neighbor kids were over and it's all going on in the backyard and it's just kind of like, y'all know what I'm talking about, okay? Kids were being kids. And so correction was needed because things were getting broken <laughs> other than feelings as well. So what do I do? I send the other kids home. And I deal with my kids because it's their family. I don't have authority. I don't have really, I don't, the other kids needed to go. I didn't hate them. I didn't, you know, despise them. They just were not a part of this particular issue. It was a family matter. So you see what's happening here within the church? There's things that are, that were happening that, well, okay, there's things that are happening in the church. The God said, this isn't, this should never be. Not judging the world. You know what he said? Don't you find that very helpful? I didn't tell you not to hang around the sexually immoral people. You know, basically said, if you're going to not be around sexually immoral people, or and, it, and here's what's funny, is we tend to focus on that first thing in verse 10, sexually immoral people of, the, of this world. But he also puts this together. People always focus on this first, right? But what about the covetous or extortioners, those who manipulate things for their own benefit? Or idolaters? See, he's saying... That's what's happening in the world. If you were going to not be around that, what do you have to do? Leave the planet. That's literally what he's saying. You'd have to go somewhere else. So always remember, there's the family that's to be different. We're called out, called up, to invited to live in love at a higher level. And those that are not in the family, they're not yet born again, they're going to do something that you shouldn't be doing. Always remember, there's one thing that sinners do really well. What is it? Sin. Why do Christians get so shocked that people who do not know the power of God, the forgiveness of God, and the love of God do things that are contrary to God? That's what they know how to do. All you got to do is look in your own history, and you can remember that. So here's the encouragement. Realize that there's things that are different within the family of God, within the church. I, I, sadly, I've seen you know, people apply some of this to the non-believing world, as if the non-believing world can clean up their act just by some um, strong religious persuasion. They can't. Until they're born again, they're going to live outside the family. And while they're while, you, while we're in the family, there's things we need to do. Now, I covered it last week in more detail. We're going to leave it with that. We're going to go to chapter 6, but we are taking the approach I mentioned a little different, and I think you'll see it, 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 why we'll, we'll approach this portion of Scripture this way. I'd like to go down to verse 11 first of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And I want to build from there, and I think 
as we start wondering and pondering, grasping, holding on to what this means, I think we'll be encouraged. And it says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So I want to stop there and consider the tense. What I mean is, it's not speaking you can be, you will be. It says you are. It's, it's past tense. It's speaking to you and me. It's complete. It's done. It's accomplished. What is? You were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. The very Spirit, Holy Spirit, not an essence or a, a you know, feeling, a person, the person of the Holy Spirit, We're told that he empowered, literally come upon Jesus and empowered him at at his, you know, wilderness temptation, so to speak, when he was taken into the wilderness, literally led by the Holy Spirit for like 40 days. The very power, the person, the Holy Spirit, which raised him from the dead, that's the very person who resides in you and me. The very person that works in and through you and me. And it says there that, you know, the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, we were washed, sanctified, and justified. Let's consider those things. I think it's very important. Washed. If you turn with me to Titus 3, 5, we'll bring it up on projection. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Speaking of when this, this kindness and, and the love of God, our Savior, when he, when he came to men, he appeared... Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration, the cleansing of regeneration. Regeneration speaks of your reborn, regenerated, not you cleaned up your act, not that you got your life together, not you found something new to do on Sunday morning. It speaks of you were born again, this regenerate, the washing, the cleansing. And you know, one of the things that many Christians struggle with that the enemy wants to bring up to you and me is that you're dirty. I know what you used to do. I know how you used to be. I know how you even think currently. You're not, a, you're not all the people you're making people think you are. You, you know what I'm talking about? There's this sense of this stirring. And, and God wants you to know you have been washed. At the moment of regeneration, you've been cleansed. We take communion and we recognize that, the, the, and it's so hard to grasp because of the symbolism and various things, but the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sins. That we recognize that blood makes us whiter than snow, cleanses, washes us. So important to, to understand that that's who you are. You've been washed. You're, you're born again, reborn, and it says in this that the renewing of the Holy Spirit, this ongoing daily work of the Spirit, where it says in Ephesians 5, I believe it is, to, you know, to be, um, we're born again, and we're to then continue to be, you know, filled with the Spirit, keep ye being filled with the Spirit, this ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives, washing us. We know in Ephesians also it speaks of the, the washing of the Word where that is kind of like water flowing over our very soul. That's why you go to work, and you go to different places, and you have certain realities in this life, and you come home as a Christian feeling dirty. Agreed? Like you've just been walking through the muck and the mire of this life, and you feel, in a sense, I just, man, I just feel so dirty after putting up with that language at work, about dealing with those issues, and having to look at that and deal with that. And 
just, it just weighs on you. But when you go to the Word, there's an odd thing that takes place. It, 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 it doesn't line up with the academic thought or the, the normal course of human reasoning. What happens is there's a cleansing take place when you turn to the Word, when you allow Him to refresh you and, and literally just kind of wash you. You're washed. Not only are you completed, you're washed in, in regeneration, the ongoing cleansing that comes from the work of God, to the presence of God as we're into the word of God. Now, this next one we found there in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. You know, notice we, we have been washed and we are sanctified. Now, the tense, as I've said, is complete, done, accomplished. So does that mean that we're completely sanctified? Well, in one sense, yes. Let's think of the word. Sanctified speaks of set apart for a purpose. Uh, word consecrated would come to mind, that you're sanctified. See it this way. You're separated and dedicated by God. That's what happens when you are born again. Separated and dedicated. Separated from profane and dedicated to God. Now, you're still exposed to it, but you no longer desire it. Matter of fact, your deeper desire is to be dedicated to God, used by God, close to God. Well, how does this happen? For a reference, let's consider Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says in verse 10, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How are we set apart? How are we sanctified? By the work of Jesus Christ. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And notice it says once for all. It's not something that we can work into. Now, I understand, and I hope you do too. I hope maybe I can communicate it clearly. The work of sanctification is an ongoing process among the sanctified. So the, so the work of sanctification, this ongoing work of, of separation and dedication is, is an element of maturity, of growing in Christ. So as we were in one point, I know my life, there was a season when certain things were tolerable to me. Actually, they were okayed by me. But as I grew, I started realizing that word, that truth from Scripture contradicts my practice. Therefore, my practice must change. I don't need to study the word to see how my practice will fit into it. My practice must change. And God didn't feel like deeply convicted that, that I'm doing something wrong. God just, okay, now let go of that. And then there's other time, other things that I would continue to do, and I got to a point where he says, you need to drop it. You need to stop it. You know this is coming between you and me. And so are you going to keep doing it, or are you going to drop it? Like, I don't know how to quit. Kind of like God says, good. Glad we got that straight. Let me show you now how to let go, how to embrace, how to turn to me and allow me to, to do the work in you. So, do you see the washing that takes place at regeneration, the sanctified reality? We're set apart and dedicated, and he continues that work in us. Placed into the family, now prepared for family business, prepared for family work. Let's look at the third word that we found there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. The third word we see in that portion of Scripture is justified. He says... You're washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. That word speaks of just as if you had done nothing wrong. Kind of an accounting term. Uh, 
you had on your account, your debt due, the, the penalty of sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you have this sin debt, but the wages of sin are death. So how can you reconcile the account? How can it be made right? Well, you're justified by his work, by his blood. Look at Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, there in verse 1 and 2. Let me jump over there to Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's this relationship with him. He has made it right. He came, lived a sinless life, laid down his life, which had no sin debt, for it had no sin, laid down his life, died for our sin, rose from the dead, conquering death and hell, conquering the sin penalty, and offering that victory to whoever would receive it, whoever would believe in his name. His victory transferred to your debt. His victory erasing your debt. That's how we were made right. That's how we were justified. It's, it's, it's more than um, not guilty. See, you can, you can be ruled not guilty, but still in a tough spot. Jesus has made us just, speaking of the word justice, just before God. He's brought us into the kingdom of his children, Princes and princesses of the king. From a beggar on the street to royalty in the company of the king. And that's what's happened. It's changed us. As you've seen in Romans 5 verse 1, carrying on into verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So now we're starting to hopefully see a new identity so we need to grasp this, this reality, I trust, that we are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified by what he has done. How you are is an expression of who you are. Do we believe that? How you are is an expression of who you are. I really believe that. And when we understand who we are, it affects how we are. If you do not realize or recognize that you are royalty, then you will live in poverty, spiritually. If you don't realize you're royalty, then you're going to live in poverty. It's a relational truth that many Christians do not embrace. I don't think it's because they are unwilling to accept it. I believe that maybe they haven't just embraced it. It seems like such a, almost a pompous thing to claim that you're a child of the king. But you are. You are a child of the king. When you know who you are, it affects how you are. When you understand the love of God in a deeper way, and you're not going to get it all at once. This is not just a, a light bulb moment and you'll change forever. It may be several light bulb moments as you move through life and you grow in a deeper understanding. I like to think of it in a comparison, maybe a symbolism. It's like a tree planted by rivers of water. This, a tree that's healthy... The root will go deep and it'll go wide. It'll provide stability in the storm. It'll provide, um, you know, nourishment for longevity. But not only is it just a few this way and then deep, there's all these little finger roots that just provide more health for the tree, more stability in the storm. 
And as we are growing in our understanding of who we are, we become more stable in the storms. Agreed? We start realizing things come and go. Things happen. And yet, when you know who you are, it affects how you are. Here's the problem in the church. Too often, we're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. We, we're, it's not because we want to be that way. It's just a reality. See, deep down, we want to be accepted. We want to be approved. We want to be liked in this life. You may think, well, no, I, I want to be loved by, I know the love of God. No, be honest with yourself. I've not yet met one person who got up in the morning and said, you know, I'm going to go to church and I hope I feel rejection. I hope someone just pushes me aside and ignores me and I go home in tears. I'm looking forward to that. What a wonderful day it would be. That would be a good day for me. Nobody in full faculties or even partial faculties is going to desire that. Deep down, we, we want to be accepted. We want to be one. We want to, have, we want to share our story. It's not egocentric. It's our life story. We want to have some sense of engagement. That's not a problem. But we got to recognize, who do we want the approval from? Who do we want to be accepted by? Who, who is it that, you know, we really were hoping that they would acknowledge us or speak to us or say something pleasant to us? See, deep down, we want to be accepted, approved, liked in this life. And guess what? You are. You are. You are washed. You are justified. You are sanctified. You're a child of the living God. Live like it. Know who you are. I believe this is a, an essential truth. I'm standing here as a, as a man who has studied the word. I've been blessed by God. I've been invited by God. I've been able to share the word of God for pushing 30 years. And yet I'm still learning how to take firm grip of this truth. That I am justified. I'm sanctified. I'm washed. He has not looking at me and saying, Dan, are you kidding me? Why did you say that publicly? Well, he might say that a little bit. I'm harder on myself than anyone else. You know that. Most of you know that. You're harder on yourself than anyone else is. And God is saying to you, you're my child. I love you. I love you so much, I'm going to correct you. I'm going to bring truth to you. Do you know who you are? Because when you know who you are, it affects how you are. It affects how you engage and how you process trials and difficulties. I mentioned this first service, and I contemplate it. I still embrace it, so I'll repeat it. I'm not speaking in a sense of thus saith the Lord prophet type thing. I'm speaking probability, I guess I'd say. Somebody listening to this message or sitting here today, within a week or say within a month, someone will experience tragedy. Somebody will face difficulty. Somebody will see a hardship or go through a difficult thing. We, just, we know that. The question is, do we know who we are? That when those things come, when those trials come, we're not conflicted. We're not somehow confused thinking that we've done something to bring that on. You, trials and hardship and death will come. We know that. I would just present to you why we study the word, why we get to know the living God, is that we're more prepared for the difficulties that are inevitable. The difficulties most times are not because of your deficiency. 
The difficulties are due to living in a fallen world and a loving God extending his hand to you and say, let me carry you through this. Let me help you in this. Let me teach you the love of God. I believe that's why, because we're struggling in this area, why when hardship come, we say things like, why is God doing this to me? What, is he, what am I supposed to learn from this? We, we turn a difficult thing almost into self-analyzation. When, when God's saying, just keep your eyes on me, I think there was a, a gathering of people here recently that sang a song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face. I think it was near this area somewhere, like a, right here. Keeping your eyes on him. All right, we are ready to study chapter six. Second longest intro in all of history. Here's why I wanted to look at verse 11 and then read 1 through 11. Because when you know who you are, it affects how you are. When you realize this, then you're going to be able to answer a question that's presented six times in 20 verses in the chapter of 1 Corinthians 6. One question presented six times in a varying context, but the core is the same. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Let's begin in verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Do you, no, do you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. When we know who we are, it affects how we are. Do you not know? And that's what he's saying to you and I. Do you not know? Who you are as a child of the king. Do you not know? You will judge angels. <laughs> it's a Mufaso moment. Give you the kind of the shivers, you know? Like, wait a minute, judge angels? I don't get that. Well, you will. As his children, he's brought you alongside, imparted his wisdom upon you. And in times to come, maybe in the millennial reign, maybe sometime after, maybe a little bit before, we will be a part of somehow discerning things related to angels. I, I just think, really? You could have done better. But he said, no, no, you're my kids. This is what you'll be doing. Do you not know you'll, you'll do this? And why did, what's the context of that? You guys are taking each other to court? You're going outside the family, and you're going to this area over here of, of the world that is so opposed to you. 
It's contrary to you. It doesn't even like you, yet you run to them to solve your, solve your personal matters. And he's saying, excuse me? What are you thinking? You don't know who you are. You wouldn't be going over there. See, in, in the Corinthian system, had a Greco-Roman flavor to it and a lot of philosophy and, and a lot of judicial wrangling. And, and really, the, the Corinthian court system was a type of entertainment. They, they liked oratory. They liked the presentation. They liked the dissertation. They liked the debate. They liked kind of the whole court thing. It was more of a show and kind of a entertainment fluffy thing. I was thinking it was different than our system, but actually I realized it's not. It's different. You know what I'm saying? So they, were, they, so they would go to court and it was all about this. And he's like, are you kidding me? You can't resolve these minor matters amongst yourself? Is there not even one? You know, one, in one sense, we're speaking of their, you know, where, you know, you, is, is there not anybody in your, in, that could handle even the smallest, the judge of smallest matters among you? you what? Because have you noticed, God is no, he doesn't show partiality to men. He doesn't say, well, you're a Christian longer, so I will limit truth to you only. Hopefully you have a collection of truth, a compilation, a library, because you've been in the word of God that the Holy Spirit will pull off the shelf and use in the situation. But get this, he can use anybody. I believe that God consistently uses our children to teach his parents important truths. Anybody, any parent want to agree with me on that one? That he will speak through your child, if you're willing to listen, things that you need to realize what you're saying. Like this. I said to a five-year-old daughter, my daughter, you can't call your brother stupid. He's your brother. You should not do that. I said this. I think that's a good truth, don't you? You shouldn't treat your brother that way. I think it was less than, I think it was the next day, honestly. The next day, my brother's living in our house, the dumb one. Not the dumb house, but the dumb brother. I say that because he's the closest. We're probably the most alike, so that's why I could make that connection if you would he's in his late teens early 20s something like that and he just did some dumb things and i i told kim as we're sitting at the table he, he is so stupid and our daughter heard me say it the five-year-old and so she looks at me and says dad how come you can call uncle steven stupid and i said because he's stupid and she says, how, how come you can call him that? He's my brother. Those were the words out of my mouth. Do you remember what I said to her the day before? You can't call your brother stupid because he's your brother. But I can call my brother stupid because he's my brother. And, and she's looking at me with these cute little eyes like, duh. And out of the mouth of babes comes this truth. And, and you know, sometimes kids can just present things. They're just, you know... They're just kids. They're just, but they see things uniquely and beautifully. And other times, I'm as a pastor, I've been teaching for years, as I've mentioned. And I'll have a conversation with somebody that we meet regularly with, or, or I say it's someone who just barely become, just become a Christian recently. And, and they start sharing all this stuff, and they're trying to figure it all out. And, and then from their mouth will come this truth, this insight, this thought. And, and I'm, I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I did not realize that. I've been taught... By a two-year-old, even though I've been walking for decades. 
Do you understand? God brings his truth through his people. He's no discerning. He's no partiality. Is there not someone among you who can handle these minor matters, but instead you go to the court system of the world and try to find some sense of judicial agreement? He's like, it's, it's, it's utterly a shame, to, shame that you even do that. Now, don't you think that this, this could be taken as like, you know, a, a mean word, uh, something that's divisive, something that's too much in the face of the people of Corinth. But it was in love that he's bringing this truth that they would realize, man, I, I, you've got a point. It's already an utter failure for you that you go to the law, go to law against one another. Verse 7 is where I'm reading. Why do you not accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? It's not, meant, it's not saying that you should be a doormat for the world or for other Christians to wipe their feet on and you could be mistreated. But I have experienced this. There's times that I've had to pay too much or I have been, I've just been cheated in the body of Christ. And I've allowed it. I, I don't think it's a hardline hard principle, but I've understood this. For the greater good, it's Okay. In other words, I've seen times and places and situations that my witness is more important than the, than the financial bottom line. It's better to be a good witness. And I'll share this one with you. Some years ago, we had a family attending, and um, the parents weren't all they presented themselves to be. And as a pastor, I, I'm weighing out, how do I deal with this? Because it was borderline fraudulent. It was, it was borderline divisive. It was something I had to work through, and I did. I prayed through for a while. How am I going to deal with this? You know how I dealt with it? I left it alone. I left it alone. I felt cheated. I was weighing out. Am I a good pastor? Why did I leave it alone? Their kids were flourishing in the youth group. Their kids were flourishing. And if I bring up this issue at the expense of them leaving, what have I accomplished? It doesn't mean it's a green light to just let everything go, but it's a way now, like, you know, I'd rather deal with the accusations and all this other stuff knowing that those youth are being better prepared for the world they're going to face within a couple years. I would rather be cheated in that way and know that they're strong, or at least have that opportunity to grow, than to somehow interfere in, in some other element. You, you can bring the application in your own life as the Lord would direct you, but sometimes it's just, it's not that big a deal. Don't use it as a, as, a, as a rule that you just get walked on because Christians are crooks. <gasps> Did he say that? But let's face it, I, I, I sometimes would rather deal with the world when it comes to purchasing and, 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 and negotiating because you can negotiate with them and then you can sometimes with Christians. I just work through it. And hopefully that's an encouragement to you. Just, just work through it. I'm not justifying. I'm not saying it's right, but sometimes there's this witness, there's this reality of more important things in eternal perspective than a little chump change on the side. And then there's other times you just got to call them out and tell them they're crooks. So you figure it out. I didn't say that first service. You guys got the bonus. Notice, as I mentioned six times, do you not know? Do you not know who you are? Do you not know who you are? Do, and that's really what he's saying, and we'll see it next week in the last, the three, it says three times in the next portion of Scripture. Do you not know? No. Walking with Jesus 30 years, I do not know. But I'm closer today than I was yesterday. 
I'm more aware now than I was a week ago. And I'm not giving up. I'm not quitting. And that, I believe, is the echo of your heart as well. Now, I ain't got it all figured out. I don't know. I probably would have done it this way. Maybe I shouldn't have done it that way. I don't know. But now that I understand in another way, in a refreshing way, and for most of you, just a simple reminder, you're a child of the king. You're justified. You've been washed in his blood. You've been set apart for his purposes. Live with that knowledge. It fight, it'll take away the, the, the weapon of the enemy who wants to accuse you and just beat you. You're just like, you know what? When Satan is kind of coming at you saying, you know what? You're not this and you're not that. You're like, yeah, that's a good point. But I'm a child of the king. The one that conquered you, the one that you'll deal with, I'm his child and I'll just stay my, keep my eyes and my conversation on the king. I'm done with you. Don't have a discussion with the devil. It didn't work with Eve and it won't work with any of us. The point being, just know who you are. Will you stand with me? And we're going to close in a word of prayer and a song of worship. The word of prayer will be actually a prayer from the word. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul had this beautiful relationship, was just an added glimpse of the relationships of, of Scripture that encourages us to have likewise he had an interesting connection with the church in Ephesus. And he met the leaders of the church of Ephesus on the island of Miletus. And when he was there, he said, I have not neglected to present to you the whole counsel of God. He didn't hold nothing back. And what he was doing was just encouraging them to stay the course. And what we know in, in this is, is God's prayer for the church in Ephesus and for the church in Corinth and for the church in Mountain Home, and for his people in this world. It's his desire, and we're going to look at it. I'm going to, I'm going to read through it in a personal fashion and pray it. And so if you join me with that mindset, that attitude of prayer, as we consider Ephesians chapter 1, a prayer beginning in verse 17. Oh, that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, God, we would request and petition we would ask of you that you would give to each one of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. But we're not really needing to know a whole lot about this world. And yes, we need vocational understanding and relational insight. But we're in greater need of that revelation of who you are that we would know who we are. Thank you, God, that you would give us that revelation, that insight. That as the wording would say that our eyes, the eyes of our understanding would be illuminated, enlightened. That we'd be able to see more clearly, God. That we may know what is the hope of your calling in our lives. What you've invited us to. The riches of the glory of your inheritance amongst every one of us, God. And that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe and that we would experience the working of your mighty power in our lives personally, in our gatherings collectively, in all that we do, in all that we are about and where we go. Oh, Lord, may we experience your power. We put our confidence in you, Jesus, our hope in you. We have a diminishing confidence in ourselves and the things of this world, but a greatly increasing confidence in you, God. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. It's in your name we sing. Amen. Mm -hmm.